You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program. I'm Bob Solter, and pleased to be joined by Jacques Berlinerblau. He has uh, joined us before on our program. And our interview today is going to be talking about the life and work of the late Philip Roth. Yes, Philip Roth has uh, passed, and um, Jacques has an interesting perspective to share some thoughts uh, with us on um, his life and work. First of all, it's nice to uh, have you join us again on our program. Great to be here again, Bob. Thank you. We had uh, talked with you, I guess it was a couple years back at uh, that time, about the release of your book. I hope you've been well. I've been very, very well. Okay. I guess first, let me get your reaction uh, to the news that Philip Roth had passed. I was strangely numb to it. And in trying to figure out why I had very little emotional response, uh, I wrote a piece for Melville House, my publisher, Mm -hmm. titled somewhat irreverently, I Wish Philip Roth Would Die More Often. Um, one thing I will say is Roth was preparing us for his death for about 35 years. He wrote constantly about death. His doppelgangers die, that is, writers that look like Philip Roth. So I guess I had been, uh, it was overdetermined. Uh, I was completely ready and psychologically prepared for the passing of Philip Roth. You know, he had taken on so many guises. This is something that was talked about, um, back in the obituary that was in the New York Times, May 23rd, I think it was, mm-hmm. uh, and talked about the fact that he took on so many guys. Is, um, did that um, give us, in a way, a window into what he was really like? No. No and yes. It's so peculiar that he was constantly creating authors. They might have been called David Kapesh or Peter Turnipole or Nathan Zuckerman. He was constantly creating a character that really looked like Philip Roth. Uh, Grew up in Newark, loved baseball, attended uh, a college in Middle America, which looks like Bucknell, famous writer, wrote a scandalous book in 1969, born in 1933. Yet, I think what Roth created was a way to engage in art where at once he was telling us everything about himself but leaving open the possibility that it wasn't true. And that way of approaching one's art has become mainstream, and that is one of Roth's lasting contributions uh, to American artistic culture. When you talked or talk about Philip Roth's work in the classroom, because one of the things you had shared with us last time that we talked was your work in the classroom. We talked a little bit about that whole experience, what that's like. Um, what's the reaction that you get? It's changed. In the 90s, when I used to teach him, there would always be one or two students that were very troubled by him. Mm -hmm. In the aughts, there might have been five in a class of 15 or 20. And now half my class, 10 or 12 students, uh, are triggered, Uh, especially when we read a work like Portnoy's Complaint or Sabbath's Theater, which is very salacious and has a lot of prurient content. So it makes me wonder about Roth's legacy precisely now at the Me Too moment. 
uh, I don't know if a readership, if a young readership at present can look past that, uh, the misogyny, the very, very sexualized content, the, I would say, often weak portraits of women in his work. There's a lot of other great, great stuff in Philip Roth, by the way. But when I teach him, I'm noticing people really want to linger on that, and they want to have discussions about why it's there and what it means about him, Philip Roth, and what should be happening in a college classroom, given the nature of that content. Does that bother you, that they get so focused on that? No. As a professor, you learn. Uh, Each generation is different. So in the course of a professor's life, I think you get to teach two, maybe three generations. Mm -hmm. So I find it interesting. I learn from it. And because I do think Roth is a great and important writer, I might argue with him on some points, agree with him on others, but I also want to direct them to other aspects of Roth's fiction, which might not disturb them quite as much, even though those other aspects are in and of themselves quite disturbing, but not along, let's say, gender and sexuality lines. What about his treatment and portrayal of female characters? Generally problematic, I would say. Um, there's a defense of Roth. Well, let's, let's go back a second. This all started, I think, with the 1969 Portnoy's complaint, uh, where women kind of exist as sexualized objects. There is a very, very impertinent uh, set of observations about his own mother, What one can say about Roth in his defense, not necessarily a defense I wish to make, though I think it's important, is in that work, Portnoy's complaint, he's an equal opportunity disparager. He goes after everyone. That work is racist. That work is anti-Semitic. That work is misogynist. It's anti-Asian. It's anti-Italian. There's just no one who is left unscathed after Mr. Roth gets through with it. Liberalism. He's always attacking liberalism. People don't realize that about him. Liberals are sent up in that work. So if you want to defend Roth's depictions of female characters, one thing you might say is this is what he does. This is how he generates his energy. He attacks and insults and vilifies and has a great amount of fun with it. And that is a a way of redeeming Roth, though if you look at subsequent portraits of women, you often find the same thing, and it's uniquely concentrated on women. So I don't know how redemptive that argument might actually be. Why did it seem that he often was kind of insisting that fiction versus nonfiction was a better way of getting at the truth? This is the great thing about Roth. And when I say I'd like my students, if they are troubled by these depictions of women and the way he looks at relations between men and women, they might want to move on to this aspect of Roth's work. What Roth was getting at is really major in terms of our lives. I think Roth was saying, if you want to get at a truth, not the truth, but if you want to get at a truth, you'd be better off using fiction to get there. And that fiction is kind of a portal to a deeper and better understanding of the real world. Now, notice I said a truth, not the truth. I think Roth was a bit of a relativist, ultimately. So what does fiction do? The very fact that it lets you engage in make-believe, it lets you imagine, paradoxically for this writer, will bring you to something that is more accurate and more authentic about human beings, about social structures, and about politics. 
When you talk about his relationship with American Judaism, how would you characterize that? At first, it was very tense. So in 1959, he releases a collection of short stories called Goodbye, Columbus. And many in the mainstream Jewish community leaped on him. They just pounced. And he fought back pretty hard. And Roth liked to double down. So in 1969, he wrote Portnoy's Complaint, which is completely inexcusable. I'm grinning as I say this. And by the early 70s, it was on, so to speak. It was a full-fledged battle between Philip Roth and what we might call the older Jewish establishment. This veered into debates about the legitimacy of the state of Israel. Roth made a few remarks that upset uh, many Israeli elders. So essentially the entire world Jewish community was pissed off at him. Towards the end, in the 80s and 90s, Roth is welcomed back in, probably because of works like The Counterlife, Operation Shylock, and in particular a work called Patrimony, where he writes, some would say touchingly, about his father's death and the role of Judaism in his life, which is a sub-theme there. I would argue that work, Patrimony, is a really nasty and brutish thing. I've never found that to be a heartwarming uh, assessment of his dad's life. I think that's Philip Roth added again. Nevertheless, by the end of his career, I think Roth had made peace with most uh, factions within the Jewish community. What about his views on the state of Israel? Because that changed vastly throughout his career. Yeah, I remember a quote from him. I can't remember where he said it in the 70s, where he said, I don't want to go to the state of Israel. It reminds me of a concentration camp. It's all machine guns and barbed wire. I can't remember where he said that, but he would say things like that in the 70s. He was an engagé man of the left in the late 60s and 70s. He's writing about Cambodia. He's writing about Vietnam. He's attacking Nixon in one of his more forgettable works called Our Gang. So he's a, he's a man of the left. Then by the 80s, he he seems to grasp the complexity of the situation. And that's probably why we just talked about the Jewish community welcoming him back in. He does seem in Counterlife and Operation Shylock in particular to understand that the Jewish state is in this really rough neighborhood and it's not black and white and there are complexities on all sides. And Jewish history has taught us again and again that Jews don't have lots of friends everywhere and supporters. So I do think Roth evolved and matured uh, on this issue, on the question of Israel. And as I said, by the end, Roth is no longer a thorn in the side of um, Jewish Americans or Israeli intellectuals. The one community he seems to uh, run afoul of again and again would be certain types of feminists. It used to be Jews and feminists by the end of his career. It was certain types of feminists, and the Jewish community had had relinquished its its anger or its vitriol towards Philip Milton Roth. He would, at the beginning of his career, he would bristle at being called a Jewish American writer, and that was the move you would make post World War II in the sixties and seventies. You'd claim to be an American writer, but then came identity politics, which burst out of the gate in the sixties and seventies, and it became legitimate and acceptable to point to your identity hyphenated or tinctured with your American identity. Towards the end, I do feel Roth became more comfortable uh, being known as a Jewish American writer. There was always a paradox in this, Bob, that here he was talking about he was just an American writer, just an American writer. 
But his subject matter was so Jewish. And when he didn't write about Jews, often it came to a disastrous end. And I'm thinking of a work like the 1967 When She Was Good, which is, there's not a word of Jew in it, to take a line from Portnoy's complaint. It's about uh, middle America, a place called Liberty City. Roth is trying to write like Henry James. And the novel is a disaster. It's Roth at his most unreadable because he's not writing about what he knows. And what he knew was Newark, Jews, and male sexual desire. Those are three things that Roth knew very, very well. And when he moved away from that at the early point of his career, uh, he experienced significant artistic failure. Mm. Current writers who've been influenced by Philip Roth. That's a really interesting question. I'm going to blow this out a little bit and say his influence extends beyond literature. As I had noted a little bit earlier, Roth perfected a technique in the 70s and 80s of creating a character that appears to be Philip Roth, a fictional character, but is actually not. But he he exploits the reader's curiosity in all of that. Uh, to create art. So here are a couple of examples of Roth reflexes in American popular culture. I'll give you three. Uh, The first is a show like Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. So the name of the character is Larry David. Uh, Larry David is a comedian living in Los Angeles. But is it really Larry David? Did all those things really happen? Did he have that fight with Ben Stiller? Did that whole thing happen at the Palestinian chicken restaurant? Probably not. So what the viewer understands is that this is uh, a mixture of nonfiction and fiction. Lena Dunham, that's the second example I'll give you, Bob. Girls, I think she is a she's hugely influenced by Roth. It's the same idea. Here's this character. She's called Hannah Horvath. Everybody thinks this is Lena Dunham. It's a mixture of biography, excuse me, autobiography and fiction, and it works fabulously well. The final example would be rap and hip hop. I know that seems far afield. But when these artists talk about themselves be it Snoop Dogg or Jay-Z or Kanye West, it's a similar artistic move to what Roth was doing earlier on. He's talking in the work about a character that resembles himself and has all the dilemmas that he encountered, and audiences like this. This is something that we now, as American consumers of art, feel very comfortable with. So the big question, and you kind of addressed this, but I'm going to bring it back we're talking with Jacques Berliner Blau on our program, talking with him about the life and work of Philip Roth. How is Philip Roth going to be remembered? That's the big question. If we continue to see him as a writer whose sole interest was male erotic desire, I feel he's going to go the way of Ezra Pound. Who reads Ezra Pound today? So there are all these writers back there who have these sort of crotchety, illiberal views on groups or certain types of people, and uh, history has rendered a punishment. And the punishment is we don't read you anymore. You only get read in the comparative literature department or the English department. What Roth now, what has to happen for Roth, for Roth to survive, is he really needs people, I know this might sound a little bit uh, narcissistic, he needs people like me, I'm talking about all those scholars out there, Roth scholars, to draw everyone's attention to all of the other very, very interesting and provocative ideas that one finds in Roth's work. Um, 
Outside of that, if we are going to use Portnoy's complaint as what is most representative of his aesthetic, Bob, I'm not very sanguine about his prospects of being read in the next quarter century or 50 years. If we can move his readership to understand that Roth was after all sorts of fascinating thematics, like really, really interesting stuff, uh, then I think that Roth's futures are bright. Mm. Does that leave you sad? Yes and no. Uh, I know what these thematics are. Uh, very quickly, he's fascinated by something called metempsychosis, or how a person, how all people in their lives radically change, inexplicably so. That's in his fiction from 1959 till the very end. Right? It has nothing to do with sex. It's not prurient. It's not X-rated. It's just really interesting how many times Roth looks at metamorphosis. Did he get this from Kafka? Did he get this reading existentialism? Did he go to the Far East? We don't know. But I love that theme, and people like that theme because people change. And that's one of Roth's great fictional investigations, uh, the human being radically changing and inexplicably so and dealing uh, with the transformation. Most interesting discussion with Jacques Berliner Blau on our program, talking with us about the life and work of the late Philip Roth. Thank you very much for joining us and sharing your insights. Um, I think this is an area that hopefully will inspire and intrigue some of the folks listening to us to explore the works of Philip Roth. Thank you so much, Bob. That was a lot of fun. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program uh, by Peter Enns. Peter is Associate Professor in the Department of Government at Cornell University, Executive Director of the Roper Center for Public Opinion Research, and a former Faculty Director of Cornell's Prison Education Program. His uh, previous research has appeared in journals including the American Journal of Political Science, the Journal of Politics, and Public Opinion Quarterly. He is joining us on our program to talk with us about some of the information that is contained in an interesting publication entitled Incarceration Nation, How the United States Became the Most Punitive Democracy in the World. Peter, good morning. It's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning, Bob. Thank you. I got to ask you a question I usually ask authors at the beginning because that is such a catchy title. Is that the only title you had for this book? Yeah, that's... uh... From early on, that uh, that kind of just became when I'd get, talk about my research in progress. That's what um, that's the title I gave to my talks, and it just stuck with it throughout. The book, doing this, putting this together, what was this like for you? This was a, a long a long process over seven years of research, and at first I wasn't even sure that it would become a book. And in fact, I was given a a talk at George Washington University, and I was talking to uh, uh, a professor there, and I said, I just don't know if it's a book. And he said, hey, Incarceration Nation, you got the title. Of course it's going to be a book. <laughs> and it kind of dawned on me that, yeah, this was all, I mean, this was a story that had to be told. We, you know, uh, we need to understand how the United States became the world's leader in terms of imprisoning people. And so it was an important story, and the the role of public opinion had was just not understood. And so the research developed into the book that, that we have today. All right. Your research has looked at a number of different areas, but 
the key thing to get us started, I think, is to look at this increase in the incarceration rate in this country uh, between the late 1960s and the early portion of this century, the 2000s. You know, it's an increase by something like 400 percent, which is phenomenal. How did we get here? Yeah, absolutely stunning. And it's st- we're starting to hear news reports that the U.S. has the highest incarceration rate in the world. So I think as a public, we're starting to understand this. But the fact that in the 50s, the U.S. incarceration rate was in between that of Denmark and Finland, I don't think we always realize that, that it wasn't always the case in the U.S. And so this a, a lot of factors were involved. One of the most important political decisions changing the law in terms of what were the sentencing requirements. So a lot of crimes that used to not carry prison sentences now carry mandatory sentences, crimes that carried a couple years. In some cases now a minimum 10 years, often up to life in prison. And what I was interested in is why did our political leaders, why did the criminal justice system move in this punitive direction? And that's where the role of the public. This was a response to rising public punitiveness. Rising public punitiveness fueled by what? The This really started in the, although we see the rise of mass incarceration taking off in the 70s, the process goes back to the 60s. And of course, the 60s were a tumultuous era. Crime rates were beginning to spike. And what I am able to show is Media coverage of those rising crime rates connected that process and helped the public think about this, and the public reaction was a demand for tougher, uh, just a more tough-on-crime approach. And we see in the 60s the uh, political leaders of the era beginning to respond. And what's interesting is when when the political leaders responded, and so I'm thinking of Johnson, President Lyndon Johnson, then Nixon, the public didn't turn around and become less punitive. The crime rate continued to rise. Public punitiveness, this public demand for being tougher on crime continued to rise, and the political system continued to follow. When we talk about these changes that occurred, I mean, what did that mean for politicians who, you know, basically fell in step with this kind of movement? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because with the we have a pretty much a two-party system in the United States with the Democratic and Republican Party and so when the public started becoming more punitive and kind of the first prominent example we have is Barry Goldwater taking a real tough on on crime stance Goldwater lost the 64 election by a landslide Johnson President Johnson wins, has incredibly high approval ratings, but we see him switch after he's elected with this landslide victory in the punitive direction. And so with crime, where we can often think of policies oriented toward addressing the the roots of crime, this is what Johnson campaigned on, and trying to think about developing uh, community support, job opportunities, education, training, working with youth, these policies often take longer to develop So when one party follows the public in a punitive direction, saying we're putting more police on the streets, we're locking people up, we're making sentences tougher, that really created an incentive for Democrats to shift in the same way. And so this is why 
Democrats and Republican politicians have moved, followed the public together. And that's a really important political dynamic. We're talking on our program with uh, Peter Enns. Peter is Associate Professor in the Department of Government at Cornell University, Executive Director of the Roper Center for Public Opinion Research. And he is uh, joining us as um, the author of Incarceration Nation, How the United States Became the Most Punitive Democracy in the World. I'm Bob Salter. You know, following on the idea that the news media consistently overreport violent crime and the proportion of criminal activity um, committed by racial minorities, then what is it about crime that that kind of coverage actually does present? Yeah, so, you know, there's this view or this saying of, if it bleeds, it leads. Mm -hmm. And it seems that the the media is really bought into that and to some extent the the public has too that these these stories catch our eye and you drum up a little bit of fear and and attention is paid and so it's understandable why the reporting takes place in this way at the same time there's been more stories and this is kind of followed as the crime rates decreased a little bit questioning you know, sometimes the criminal justice system makes errors. And so there's been examples of um, of uh, individuals on death row and even some who have been executed where the evidence later shows they were innocent. And these stories also gain the public's attention because they're shocking in a different way uh, along the lines of, wow, someone was uh, received the, the death sentence and it later turns out they were innocent, we might need to rethink aspects of the criminal justice system. And so I think the attraction to the if it bleeds, it leads storyline is, is understandable. I also think media may, it's possible for them to realize that a more bigger picture that the public, the public can both handle a more nuanced portrayal of crime, and in many cases, the public actually is interested in a more nuanced portrayal and just has to be delivered information in that context, and that can also sell copies or, or gain viewers. Another factor that's going to be really interesting in the years to come is how the changing media environment affects this relationship I've described between the crime rate and public attitudes toward crime and punishment. Because we live in a, new, in a new media era that I don't think we fully understand what the implications will be. When you say the change in the media landscape, in what way? The, it, in, in, you know, I'm interested, especially in this book, of the rise of mass incarceration in the 70s, 80s, 90s. That was a very different media environment, and that, inc- that time period included with the three major TV networks where people were getting very similar news. Now news is so tailored. So even uh, people reading newspapers online, just clicking on certain articles, um, getting information through a Twitter feed or Facebook, and uh, oftentimes people don't realize how tailored that is to their past viewing history. So even a, a Google search if if I type in incarceration rate in a Google search and one of your listeners types in the same incarceration rate, we may get a different different results popping up at the top because the underlying algorithm is taking into account our past search. So 
The information we get, especially through online content, is very tailored to what we've expressed via the computer as our interest in the past. And so how that affects um, the, the news information people get, what they're getting, and then how they react is, is something we're just beginning to try to learn and understand. And when we talk about the disproportionate incarceration of racial minorities, what does your research show has contributed to that? And I guess uh, the other aspect of this is what does it show can be done about that or perhaps the way of looking at that in the future? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up, Bob, because often people don't fully realize that as the incarceration rate has grown in the United States, who is incarcerated has also changed. And so in the 50s, whites were the majority in the U.S. prison system. And then as the incarceration rate steadily grew through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and through today, now racial minorities make up the majority of the prison population. So during this period, as the incarceration rate has soared, who is incarcerated has changed. And so what that means is when we talk about the criminal justice system in the United States, race has to be part of the story. And so one factor that plays into this is there's actually been sentencing disparities that have disproportionate effects on racial minorities. So one classic example is differences between how powder cocaine and crack cocaine are sentenced, where it, it took 100 times the amount of powder cocaine to equal the sentence for crack. And this is actually the federal, uh, federal policies have been changed to equalize this sentence because it was realized what a disproportionate effect this had, particularly on African Americans. And the reason is, if we look at arrest rates and imprisonment rates, whites were overwhelmingly the group imprisoned for powder cocaine, and African Americans overwhelmingly imprisoned for crack cocaine. And so if the sentencing for crack is radically higher, that means it's having a major disproportionate effect on African Americans. And so built into the law was that racial disparity. And when we talk about public attitudes, perceptions of crime, and the media, we also have to take a look at public consumption of the media. You know, some of the most popular shows on television are crime dramas. Did your research look at those? Yes, and the way I the way I looked at that was to get Nielsen data. So the Nielsen the the company that tracks viewership. Mm-hmm. I got I was able to obtain Nielsen data of the most popular shows um by viewership over time, going back all the way to the to 1960. And so I could track what proportion of television viewers were watching crime dramas over time? And what we see is in the, in the spike of public punitiveness, crime dramas weren't the driving force. So if we think of why did the public become more punitive in the 60s and 70s, which pushed us in this, into this era of mass incarceration, crime dramas 
That's not the key factor. It really goes back to media coverage of the crime rate. But that doesn't mean these crime dramas have no effect at all. And in fact, uh, researchers have done experiments where they show different crime TV shows to viewers and then look at how their attitudes change right after that show. And we do see that the standard narrative on uh, these crime dramas that are so prevalent on TV do lead to at least short-term effects in terms of more punitive attitudes. And it's absolutely stunning in this day and age how many show of the most popular shows on television are crime dramas and relate to the criminal justice system. It's almost as if the appetite for this programming and among viewers is insatiable. When we talk about mass incarceration, we also obviously have to talk about this whole political process. A lot of focus and attention on what is referred to as the two-party system. How does that, or how is that, affected in terms of, is it vulnerable in a way that could wind up sliding toward mass incarceration? Yeah, I would say that it's, the the scope of the debate with the, the two-party system and Democratic and Republican candidates, it really narrows the scope of the debate, where in most advanced industrial democracies with the proportional representation system leads to a multi-party system, and you get much more broader debate and options discussed. At the same time, what I think is so fascinating is we have focus on the 1994 crime bill right now uh, that was signed by President Bill Clinton and supported by both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. And we even and we see Democrats critiquing that. And so uh, this is consistent with what I mentioned of the public moving in a less punitive direction. So Democratic, uh, potential Democratic voters actually at Democratic campaign events raising this issue. And then we see prominent Republicans like Rand Paul or even uh, the candidate Kasich calling for and drawing attention to the importance of criminal justice reform. And so on the one hand, the two-party system and the fact that one party has an incentive to follow the other party in a more punitive direction is critical to understanding the rise of mass incarceration. But on the other hand, the fact that prominent members of both parties are talking about criminal justice reform right now signifies the important influence of public opinion, and it signifies that this isn't an inevitable outcome, that the necessary reforms to modify the criminal justice system in this country so the U.S. is no longer the world's incarceration leader. These reforms and these changes can take place. It will, be, uh, it will take a tremendous amount of work and political change, but it is possible. Peter Enns is associate professor in the Department of Government at Cornell University, executive director of the Roper Center for Public Opinion Research, author of Incarceration Nation, How the United States Became the Most Punitive Democracy in the World. I want to thank you for taking time and speaking with us about um, this book and about your work. What are you hoping that those who read this book are going to take away from it? I hope they take away two things. One, to understand the importance of public opinion in the U.S. criminal justice system, and that we often think of the legal system as insulated from the public, but we can't understand where we are today or how we got here without considering 
public opinion. And the, the second factor, which is related, we're often told by media, even by politicians, uh, we hear complaints that the system doesn't pay attention to the public or nobody's paying attention to people like you. And perhaps ironically, when it comes to the legal system and mass incarceration in the U.S., the system has followed public opinion. And when the public's become more punitive, the system followed. So the same is true in the future. And the, the uh, takeaway point is the public has a lot of influence. And if the public thinks about this in a more uh, reasoned, contextual approach and continues its trend in a less punitive direction, the system will follow and we can have really meaningful change in this country. Peter, thank you very much for joining us. Certainly good luck with this book and with your work. Thank you, Bob. It's a real pleasure. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.